This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, I will be speaking with Lisa Tetro, Professor of History at Carnegie Mellon University. She received her PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Tetro's book, The Myth of Seneca Falls, Memory, Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, I will be speaking with Lisa Tetro, Professor of History at Carnegie Mellon University. She received her PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Tetro's book, The Myth of Seneca Falls, Memory, and the Women's Suffrage Movement, published by the University of North Carolina Press, uncovers the politics behind the creation of an origins myth for women's rights. Typically, the beginning of a women's rights movement in the United States is dated to 1848 at the meeting in Seneca Falls, New York. This origin story, however, did not become commonplace until much later, a story not told during the antebellum period, but a story created in response to Reconstruction-era politics with broad-reaching implications for the direction of the women's movement. The myth was effective for women's rights leaders to deal with divisions within the movement in an attempt to unify a very diverse understanding of women's rights. The myth of Seneca Falls poses a corrective to the narrative of Seneca Falls as the origin of women's rights. Tetro examines the period of 1848 to 1898 and brings attention to conflicts in a narrative that often jumps from 1848 to the final triumph a woman's right to vote, in 1920. Our author examines the creation of the myth, the lessons it provided, and the ways that it which transformed the women's movement. Myths, she argues, are not false. Rather, they serve as shorthand for larger stories. They also neatly obscure conflict and contingency. While scholars have written alternative history, Petro sees Seneca Falls as having undue influence and seeks to descend to the narrative by illuminating its contested nature. Here's my conversation with Lisa Tetro. It's a pleasure to welcome Lisa Tetro to the show. Thank you, Lisa, for sharing your thoughts with our audience. You have written a fascinating book, and you've brought a lot of interesting ideas and historical insight to a story that we've heard over and over again. Uh, let's start off by letting you uh, tell us, uh, tell my audience a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write The Myth of Seneca Falls. Well, thanks for having me, Lillian. It's really a pleasure, um, and I appreciate that someone's out there reading the book. One never knows when they write these books and send them off what happens to them, so thanks. So I, I wrote this book in a sort of backward fashion in the way that some people back into topics unintentionally. I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin in Madison uh, in U.S. women's history, and I decided that I would research the relationship between the suffrage movement and post-Civil War politics. And it's a period for which that, those, that middle period of the suffrage movement, we don't have much history for. So that was my intention. And as I tried to nail down just what was happening in those post-Civil War decades, I read The History of Women's Suffrage, written by Elizabeth Cady 
Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Matilda Jocelyn Gage, because it's really still the most complete account we have of those post-war decades. But then as I read their account, and I was also dipping into the archives, it struck me that those two stories were really dissimilar. And so then I became interested, and it struck me as I spent more and more time unpacking the narrative structure of the history of women's suffrage, this participant history of the movement. The more I started to unravel that particular narrative, I realized how much it rested on the story of Seneca Falls. And then I became interested in how that story became, um, what the history of that story was, how it became the story of the beginning of a women's rights movement in the 19th century, when really so many things could have qualified. Um, and I realized increasingly that that was a post-Civil War story, that even though the event, the Seneca Falls event, was an 1848 event, the story of how it became entrenched as a narrative that people told over and over again was emphatically part of the post-Civil War memory boom. So I then started researching that question, but it wasn't one that I set out to do originally. It mostly arose from my sense that the, the participant histories, the official histories of the movement and the documents just didn't match. And so I became interested in that in that um, in that discrepancy. What was interesting to me was the Seneca Falls is such an established story. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, not only within scholarship, but within the public's <laughs> mind. It's, yeah. it's just sacred story. It's yeah. It's more yeah, than just it might a be man. useful for your readers if they may not know, or your listeners, I guess we're talking about, um, if they don't know the story of Seneca Falls, it might be quick, worth sure, right here, absolutely. like quickly reversing just what it is. Um, so the, as the story goes, in most accounts of women's history, and particularly when it's taught to school children, or if you go to the National Women's Rights Historical Park at, um, at Seneca Falls, in 1848, there was a women's rights meeting, and the idea goes that it evolved from an earlier event, the 1840 World's Anti-Slavery Convention in London. And at that convention, uh, delegates from the, around the world were sent to London to appear at this anti-slavery convention, and the U.S. sent both women and men to the, uh, to the convention as delegates. When they arrived, the women were not allowed to be seated, and the whole first day of the anti-slavery convention devolved into a discussion on women's rights and whether these women delegates could be seated. Um, and Lucretia Mott was one of the most uh, eminent and revered women who was there. She was an eminent abolitionist. Um, and Lucy, or I was also going to say Lucy Stone, but she had nothing to do with it. Um, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was there on her honeymoon as well. Her husband was an abolitionist. She had just gotten married. She wasn't really a reformer in her own right, but she was there as an onlooker. And as the story goes, as, as um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton would later tell it, she and Mott met for the first time. They were equally indignant at the exclusion of women from the convention. They were not allowed to be seated. And in response, they said, we'll hold a women's rights convention when we return to the United States. And then there's this eight-year hiatus in the story that's usually just sort of glossed over as Stanton was having babies. And she settled then in Seneca Falls, New York, and started a new family. And Lucretia Mott was traveling through the area. She came through Seneca Falls, uh, had a tea party with some five women, and at that Tea Party, as the story goes, Stanton poured out her woes, her domestic woes and her domestic confinement, and they decided there and then to hold the Women's Rights Convention. And then the first Women's Rights Convention was held in July of 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, with about 300 people in the most famous manifesto um, from the, probably from one of the most famous manifestos from the 19th century movement was the Declaration of Sentiments, which Stanton wrote with a few other people. And in it, they had a list of resolutions, an end to the sexual double standard, um, equal pay for equal work, access to the professions, uh, and of course the right to vote, um, which was also in there. So that is conventionally used to date the beginning of the women's rights movement in the U.S. It was not the first women's rights activity in the United States, nor was it the first manifesto to be written about women's rights. So that's sort of important, just in case your listeners don't necessarily know this history. Uh, what was interesting about you really note in your book that uh, this franchise was really sort of a side issue. There were other issues, women's rights mm-hmm. issues, that were more uh, generally accepted. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about more about that, what those rights were? Yeah, so the the 19th century movement um, consisted of a lot of different kinds of movements. There were working class women's movements who were demanding, um, you know, economic uh, self-sufficiency, which was crucial for women. Women had no access to economic self-sufficiency. Within this more mainstream women's rights movement, uh, there were demands for dress reform. Women were wearing 
really tight corsets and long skirts that, you know, were sometimes added 30 pounds to their carriage. And um, so they demanded things like bloomers. People have often probably heard of bloomers, which was a short dress with some sort of long pants underneath, um, just so that their bodies could literally move through the world in a more efficient fashion and they could just get up and do things more efficiently. There were demands for, like I said, an end to the sexual double standard. Um, there was, you know, a lot of suspicion of women's sexuality and a lot of um, uh, sort of sanction placed upon women for even suspicion of sexual impropriety, whereas men were freely engaged in all kinds of sexual impropriety and suffered no consequences for it. So um, they demanded that. They demanded um, equal pay for equal work which is something, of course, we're still striving for. They demanded for an end of violence, um, which is, of course, something we're still striving for, and the end of the sexual double standard. They demanded um, all sorts of things, access to the professions, access to education, um, access to married women's property rights. Married women could hold no property. They didn't even hold any property in their own bodies. Their husbands had free reign over what would happen to their bodies. Um, domestic violence in, in certain cases was legal. Marital rape was legal. Your, hus- your body belonged to your husband. So there were a whole host of demands that women pursued. And among them, they pursued the vote. But there wasn't a sense in the antebellum period, in that period from 1848 when that convention happened up until the start of the Civil War in 1860, there was not a sense that the vote was going to set women free alone. That really is a post-war phenomenon, that sense that the vote is the central piece of of an agenda. And it still wasn't even agreed on in the post-war period, as I try to show in my book, um, which is about the story of Seneca Falls, when and how that became a story. So how did the vote become the issue, the central piece I'm not sure I have. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one that I think still remains somewhat unanswered. So if somebody's listening and they want to go um, pursue a research topic on this, please do. We could use better answers. Uh, But I would say uh, as a kind of shorthand um, for the understanding about it that we do have, it, it arose from the really complex negotiation after the Civil War about what a black civil rights agenda would be. Um, because here after the Civil War, you've got four million emancipated, uh, you know, formerly enslaved freed people who are now freed people. And the question is going to be, what are what's their legal status and to what rights are they entitled? Um, and what rights are most significant for protecting their lives, their bodies? And in the North, anyway, although this wasn't a uh, um, uh, freed people's rights agenda, but in the North, um, it came to be centered on a sense that we should grant them the right to vote, and with that, they can protect themselves. They can protect themselves physically. They can protect themselves economically. And as the North, the U.S. Congress and the abolitionist movement itself centered on wanting to extend the franchise as this magical right which would protect all others, um, the women's rights movement started to move in that same direction and argued that the franchise would, would, would guarantee all other rights. There was a sort of larger movement after the war about the, that started to see the franchise as a kind of talisman, as a kind of, um, as a kind of cure-all in terms of a rights agenda. And not all, not all women in the women's rights movement bought that, but there was increasingly a, a strand of women who argued that that was the most important rights agenda. Is it part of the whole idea of citizenship and the relation between the individual and the state that was forming uh, and gelling yeah. at the time? What yeah, was it's the certainly state? all about that as well. I mean, the 14th and the 15th Amendment tightly link the idea of citizenship and voting, um, those Reconstruction Amendments that are added to the United States Constitution. So it's definitely part of that as well. Um, so what? So tell me a little bit more. I found very interesting in your chapter on Women's Day in the Negro's Hour, the whole conflict there between uh, women's rights and black men specifically. Yeah, it's a really contentious and painful chapter in the women's rights movement, particularly just to um, give as way by way of background so one can understand just how fractious this was after the war. At the Seneca Falls Convention, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton introduced the voting resolution, the women's suffrage resolution, she, she was met with a lot of opposition. And Frederick Douglass, who by the Civil War era is the most important African-American statesman of the 19th century, is there and he backs Elizabeth Cady Stanton and backs women's right to vote. And with his support, it passes. So he had always been a strong ally of women's rights. Then after the Civil War, when the abolitionist feminist coalition gets together again, they meet in something called the American Equal Rights Association that they form right after the American Civil War. And they make as their central demand uh, voting rights for women and for men. 
uh, for freedmen and, and for women. Uh, and that becomes divisive when the U.S. Congress passes the 15th Amendment, which they do in the spring of uh, 1869, and then it goes to the states for ratification. And the 15th Amendment says that you cannot discriminate in voting on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That's the language in the amendment. And it's said to be the amendment that gives black men the right to vote. Um, and in the American Equal Rights Association, that, of course, was only half of what they were demanding. They were demanding suffrage for freedmen and also for all women. So there's a big division within the American Equal Rights Association when they meet in May of 1869 as to whether or not they're going to support the 15th Amendment. Um, most of the organization supports the 15th Amendment as a really important partial step towards full equality for all people. There are two women and a handful of others um, who very prominently do not support the 15th Amendment. And that's Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Um, and they come out with a lot of really racist rhetoric about enfranchised freedmen being able to vote um, and make the laws that these educated white women should have to follow. Um, and so uh, there is a very ugly debate at the time when they say we will not have Sambos uh, and ignorant black men voting over us. And uh, Frederick Douglass, in response, says this is a matter of life and death. If we don't have this right, we're going to be lynched and killed. Uh, and, you know, this is important. So it's a it's a very ugly chapter. And Stanton and Douglas find themselves on the opposite side of the issue. Well, and Stanton will vehemently oppose the 15th Amendment. Well, Anthony and Stanton, in your book, really come off terribly. I mean, they uh, they really are uh, scary, uh, the way you portray them, uh, which is it was a little <laughs> shocking. Well, you know, uh, with Susan B. Anthony, uh, we'll get to it later, but burning the archives, I mean, this is <laughs> real serious. Uh, yeah, uh, Tell me about the... the uh, the movement at the local level, before uh, it was consolidated into this national movement, there were a lot of things going on locally in different states and cities. Talk, talk to me about that and what happened to that in, in the creation of the Seneca Falls myth. There is all kinds of activism at the local level. After the Civil War, the movement explodes at the grassroots. And, but yet we often tell it as if it's a kind of top-down, leader-driven story with Stan and Anthony in charge and then, you know, the states kind of following suit. That is not what was happening. This was a movement that just exploded at the grassroots. And women were pioneering strategies. They were pioneering, you know, combinations of rights agendas. And they were heading out and just taking the lecture circuit, organizing groups, um, you know, pressing their state legislatures for changes. And Stanton and Anthony find all this to be kind of undisciplined, um, particularly Anthony in the most part. And she's frustrated that the movement isn't more coherent. And so part of her goal throughout the 1860s and 1870s is just to impose some structure and order on this movement, which to her mind doesn't have enough. Um, and of course, a movement doesn't need to be structured and hierarchical to be successful. Grassroots movements can be very vibrant. And I would argue that this was fundamentally a grassroots movement that we just don't know very much about. Um, and there was lots of opposition even at the grassroots to some of the national leaders. They really resisted their efforts to impose structure. So there was lots of resistance at the grassroots to Stan and Anthony, as there was to Lucy Stone and some other people. So they were not, these were not two ladies who were fully in charge in the 1860s and the 1870s. Um, and maybe later we can come back to the question of them not coming off very well. Um, because that was, of course, something I struggled with tremendously when I wrote the book, um, is how is this not going to be a bashing session? So um, so anyway, perhaps we can come back to that, because I do think it's important to talk about. Well, they, they were trying to, based on your book, they were trying to consolidate this movement into something coherent. Yeah, and sure so what was the process? Or something coherent in their version. I would argue that it had coherence, just a different kind of coherence than they wanted. Right. So how? What was the the process by which they they thought to do this? What was the first thing they wanted to do? Uh, they wanted everyone to align behind a federal strategy and push for a federal amendment. I mean, that was their main goal. How to do that was a was a much more complicated was a much more complicated event. Um, and of course, the book that I write is about particularly one strategy that they used was which was using historical memory and starting to center the Seneca Falls story as the um, as the fulcrum of the women's movement and thereby elevating the vote and elevating themselves. How did they create that story? 
Very gradually. And, and, you know, and to some degree they do it self-consciously and some degrees I think it's quite unselfconscious. They, they begin to realize after the American Civil War when there's so much discussion about the memory of the war and that memory of the war being really influential in a rights agenda that they just start entering the memory wars and they start saying, our movement is long lived. So in some ways they just start arguing for women's rights by saying, we've been at this since 1848. It's been a long time. We deserve rights too. You know, this isn't a new and novel thing. And then. So how, how does the, uh, the women's, uh, conceptualization of their story and how the civil rights memory was being constructed sort of intersect mm-hmm. and, and they end up in your book really helping the South. Well, yeah, I, I don't know that I'd say that they. Well, they're anti-abolitionist, uh, sort of. They're not. They're not anti-abolitionist. They're anti-abolitionist memories. So the abolition movement after the war, you know, had scored this huge victory in the in the terms of um, in the terms of emancipation finally taking place. And they they spend a lot of time in a kind of self-congratulatory mode, the abolitionist movement, and with good reason, right? This was a pretty phenomenal event. Um, but one of the self-congratulatory modes that they're in is very masculine. And this, the abolitionist movement had been incredibly female-driven. And many, many women were not only the foot soldiers in the movement, the ones who raid the money, but they were also some of the leaders in the movement. So after the war, uh, women are very upset with uh, the abolitionist movement for being so masculinist in its representations of itself. Uh, and that masculine remembrance also sabotaging really any claim for women's rights, that women had also been part of this movement. So one of the things they do is start arguing that the suffrage movement, um, and Stanton and Anthony do this mostly, not all suffragists do this, had been the greatest movement for history humanity had ever inaugurated. Um, and they say, you know, Seneca Falls was the greatest moment in the in human history. And clearly this is meant to take aim at abolitionist narratives. It's saying, look, you didn't do the greatest thing on earth. You have left the greatest thing on earth undone. And if you want to make yourself um, if you want to make yourself legitimate as a civil rights and human rights reformer, then you need to back women's suffrage. And most of the abolitionist movement just turns its back on the story and says, you know, story's over. Um, so for that reason, they're they're really taking aim at um, abolitionist memories after the war, which are saying abolition was the most important thing that the war accomplished. And they're saying, no, it's left a really important thing un- unaccomplished. And that's women's rights. So they start telling the story of Seneca Falls as a way to argue that the movement is long lived and is incredibly important and that it deserves respect and attention in the present day. Um, and then they start to use it for reasons inside the movement as well. But that's a slightly different story I tell in the book. You also talk about the fact that uh, Stanton and, and, and uh, Anthony and Cage decided that they needed to collect the story, create the story or write down the story of women's rights. And right. so they began to collect documents. And I think that that was a very fascinating, huge project. Yeah. The way you describe it. It's amazing. I mean, and it's there to be commended for it. It's truly incredible what they do. So and they really found the discipline of women's history. And one of the things I wanted the book to do was kind of investigate the the foundation of our discipline, which I think Stanton, Anthony and Gage are, are um, have a, a heavy hand in. They at a time when nobody writes women's history, nobody collects women's history, nobody writes it. They sit down and just start collecting documents and letters and newspapers and creating this incredible repository of documents about the movement. And then they sit, you know, with piles around them of unsorted documents and things, and they try to start piecing it together and writing a history, which is an incredible gift. Like anyone who's ever in a social movement knows that like collecting documents from it and having a history of it is an amazing gift to the movement and actually really central to its activism. And so they create this huge archive and they write a massive three-volume participant history of the movement, which... I think is not to be underestimated in the fact that they undertook this and just how radical it was and how forward thinking they were in many ways of realizing that. And, you know, it wasn't well accepted in some Harvard. They send a copy of the three volumes to Harvard and Harvard returns them because they don't think it's worthy of their shelves. Right. So this was this was really radical to be writing this kind of history in this period with all of its attendant problems, right? As I talk about in the book, it has plenty of problems, but I think we can't lose sight of just how important it was that they did this. Like, it's truly amazing. So so how did, uh, I was interested in how women uh, responded to the, the history when it came out. You know, women who had given their stories, their narratives, their documents, they have contributed from all over the country, and then they read uh, what Anthony 
and Stan have done with their stories, and what what did they find? Tell our I wish I knew. I wish I knew better the answer to that. What I did know, I put in the book, and I'll say some yeah. about that. But we don't have a lot of letters of people writing back and forth about their reactions to the history of women's suffrage. So I don't. I don't fully know the answer to that. And like you, it's a question I kept asking, and I really, I wish I had a clearer answer. But what I, what I do know is that many of the contributors found them found themselves quite frustrated with the final project. Um, they would contribute, you know, here's what I did in Iowa, you know, as a kind of write-up. And then um, Amelia Bloomer is a fine example. And then she becomes really frustrated with the edits that Stanton Anthony and Gage put her mem- remembrance through. And that she says, you know, it doesn't look anything like it did in the beginning. And, you know, they just make, they just make the history come out the way they want it to. And I don't think it's that they're being conniving and self-interested. Um, I mean, I think they're being self-interested, but I don't. I don't know that it's just sheer conniving. I think what these women are also doing is doing the really hard work of having to make choices when you write a book, and that is you have to leave stuff out and you have to put other stuff in, and that becomes really contentious. There are women who are furious about. You know, so-and-so got put in as a member of the California movement, but so-and-so didn't, and they think this is a huge slight. Or, And I'm sure some of that was designed as a political move, and I'm sure some of it was also just the product of having to write a selective history. So, Because when I, when I read it, it, it reminded me of the fact that women's history continues to be sort of a political uh, game. Because it sure does. I mean, <laughs> because there's always going to be women who say, well, that is not my story. Right. That's not right. what happened. Right. Uh, that's only certain women. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, when I was, you know, when I first was coming up with um, shifting this to a story about the history of the Seneca Falls uh, narrative, I, I was at an OAH panel and it was on the memory of first wave and second wave. Uh, and I presented a paper on um, first wave, so-called first wave. A couple people presented panels on second wave. This was in the early 2000s. And there were all these second waivers in the audience who kept raising their hands saying, no, you can't tell it that way. That's not the way it worked. That's not, you're, you're forgetting me or you're forgetting so-and-so or you're forgetting the movement in, you know, I don't know, Alabama or you're forgetting whatever. And it really struck me that this debate that was happening in the room with these participants who were arguing, you're not telling it right, was precisely what women were saying to Stanton and Anthony, you're not telling it right. Um, and I think to some degree they were writing a very, um, a history with a with a definite point of view that was exclusionary, but I think in other senses, what the exclusion that some women felt, I think, was just a natural part of history production. So, for better or for worse, right? So, what do you think some of the uh, main historical uh, problems that you're addressing that need to be excavated some more? There's some things you leave a, quite a few things undone, and mm-hmm. that's fine because you can't mm-hmm. do it all. But right. Uh, what would you like to see people do a further work on? The thing that I left most undone and that I really struggled with in writing the book, it took me a long time to disentangle it from the narrative, was an alternative history of the movement in this period. Uh, and so I, what I'd really like to see someone do is go and really closely study what's happening on the ground. I try to sketch out what I think the shape of what's happening on the ground is, this kind of grassroots movement, um, a lot of pushback against national organizations, a really varied women's rights agenda. We need way more histories of working class women in this period. Lara Vapnak just published a really great, great book called Breadwinners on this economic, you know, self-sufficiency movement. We need better work on free love. We have a book by Joanne Passett, but we need more. Um, we need better work on um, on the temperance movement. We have some, but we don't have very much. So there's all these various women's rights act groups that we like. We need much fuller histories of what they're up to in the 1870s and the 1880s. And then we also need um, a much better history of suffrage activism. Like we just don't know what was happening very well on the ground in the 70s. And we need better biographies. Like we don't have a decent scholarly biography of, of, of Susan B. Anthony, which is stunning, right? She's arguably one of the most recognizable, if not the most recognizable woman from the 19th century, partly because she was on a dollar coin. But um, we just don't have a good biography of her. And, you know, this huge uh, mass of papers of hers have come together and been collected since the 1980s, thanks to Ann Gordon, uh, who's put together the Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton papers, and her stuff is now collected in a kind of, co- you know, in a single spot 
Uh, and nobody's used those to really write a full-blown biography of Susan B. Anthony. So here she is, this incredibly pivotal figure, but we don't know very much about her. She herself is still shrouded in mystery. So I think all those things would be really, really helpful. I think more work on um, abolitionist memories and the ways in which women resist and participate in those the production of those memories. More work on the relationship of um, women's rights memories and their relationship to post-war memory culture. Uh, temperance memory work would be really interesting to me to find out more about what kind of stories is temperance telling about its own origins and how does that shape its movement. So all of those things I think would be, um, would be terrific. Okay. Let's get back to what you're talking about. They, they created this uh, history and then how did they establish Seneca Falls? What are some of the key events that established Seneca Falls as the story of women's rights? Mm, The first, that's the end of your uh, later part of your book. Yeah, they do essentially three things. One is that they just start holding anniversary conventions. And at those anniversary conventions, the first one's in 1873 for the 25th anniversary, and then they held another one in 78, another one in 88, another one in 98. Um, And each time they do that, they increasingly elaborate the story and it becomes more and more of a production and a kind of canonical narrative. And a, so, so they do that. They start in 1873 and by 1888 at the um, International Women's Council, which they throw as a f- celebration of the 40th anniversary of Seneca Falls, it's really a huge production. I mean, we're talking a major memory pageant on the stage. And at this point, they've really inculcated all the convention goers in this particular story. The second thing they do is that they write the history of women's suffrage and it is the linchpin of the history of women's suffrage, that particular event, 1848. Um, They go so far as to say that, you know, it established everything the women's movement has ever argued for since. You know, it's sort of conceived of everything. Therefore, when you tell its story, you tell the whole story, Um, which is, of course, not true. Um, They do that. And then um, the the third thing, the third thing they do, the third thing they do is they write other pieces. So not just the history of women's suffrage, but they're also writing, um, they republish the Seneca Falls proceedings, for example, in 1870, so that they become more widely available. So they start to create a kind of primary trail, a primary document trail for this story that also buttresses it so that it's disseminated that way. What's interesting is that Anthony becomes sort of the leader, but she was never at Seneca she Falls. Does. Yeah, so one of the one of the main stories near the end of the book um, is that strangely Stanton gets written out of the history, and she was the one who was there at Seneca Falls. Susan B. Anthony, who was never there, um, gets increasingly written into the story um, by people around, and she becomes kind of the main guardian of the story. Although she she will never deliberately claim to have been there, but she will start to be so closely associated with it in ways that I talk about in the book that by the end of her life, when she dies, all newspaper accounts of her death basically say, you know, the woman who inaugurated Seneca Falls um, and get it completely wrong. And by Stanton's death, another story I tell in the book, she's become really eclipsed in movement memory because of some of the things she did. Um, And then much as Seneca Falls was a political football that Stanton and Anthony used after Anthony's death, she becomes as the movement splits, the suffrage movement splits after Anthony's death into the National Women's Party and and NASA. Um, they also start using the memory of Seneca Falls and the memory of Anthony as a kind of political football to try to see who's who's actually legitimate in the present. You know, all these stories sort of draw lines of legitimation. So, in that sense, it's not all Anthony's doing. It's also the post the post um, post Anthony's death. You said in your book that alternative histories uh, of women's rights have been written, not sufficient. But there's many, you know, alternative histories written. But mm-hmm. you're saying that Seneca Falls remains the central uh, point by which these uh, histories identify themselves against, you know, yep. over against Seneca Falls. And you're right. trying to decenter it. Yep, I sure am. Yep. And what would that look like? I wish I knew. That's that's the book project I'm kind of working on now. It's trying to figure out what a history of that looks like if we decenter Seneca Falls and don't hold the story together with that narrative, and if we don't hold the story together with suffrage either, um, and you know which that narrative really insists we do. So um, that's what I was gesturing at earlier when you said, "What work do we need? We need that work. We need what this history looks like if we decenter Seneca Falls." So what I was trying to do in this book is just free free the free the history from the constraints that Seneca Falls seems to be putting on it. Um, and then, you know, and if we can keep opening it up, as other people have tried to do as well, perhaps we can get somewhere that's more um, more illuminating as to what was happening. 
one of the obstacles I can see that we have is that Anthony and Stanton, or Anthony's particularly, burned so many documents. And I'm just like, what did we lose? And how can we, is there any way, we can't recover those that are lost, but are there other right. things that yeah. we can recover? That that was just painful. If you're a historian, it's it, very it, painful. Yeah, I know. I have never been able to get over it. And what you're referring to for your listeners yes. is at the end of the book, um, I tell the story of what happens after Anthony um, then commissions a three or Anthony then commissions a three volume biography of herself. Obviously, that's you have a pretty high estimation of yourself if you commission three volume biography of herself, but she does. And after that's completed, she starts burning that archive that she had assembled in her attic over, you know, what, 30 years of historical work. Um, and we just don't know what she burned, but there's no doubt in my mind that she didn't do that with, a, with an attention to the fact that, um, that these documents could illuminate other stories. And she wanted her story, to, her official history to be the only history. Um, but I just, I did, we just don't know what she burned, but the burning went on for weeks um, and it was in massive amounts. So it was a lot. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, another, another historian has come back at me and kind of said, um, and I, I'll just kind of give their, their rebuttal because I think it's fair and I think we just don't know. But another historian came back to me after they'd read the epilogue of my book and said, you know, what was she going to do with this stuff? Who was going to take it? Where was she going to archive it? You know, Harford had returned the copy as the history woman suffrage. Like, where could she put it that literally no one would take it? So maybe it was Mordbom 9. Maybe she just literally didn't know where it would go. But I don't see any reason why it couldn't stay in her attic or why it couldn't go to NASA or why it couldn't go. Um, so we just don't know. I actually think it was more nefarious than that. Other people don't think it was so nefarious. But someone who had the kind of attention to historical production the way Anthony did and the way she so carefully attended to it over her life, you don't burn archive, you don't burn documents over several weeks in massive numbers without knowing that you're up to a, right? I mean, yeah, I just, I can't wrap my head around that. But, it just strikes uh, but me really, so but did she have, disturbing. she had some sort of memory, a consciousness of memory in how important politically memory was. Mm-hmm. But she didn't have the historical perspective we have today or the training. Did she really understand the value of these documents, except for the immediate value of having some sort of political um, power? Absolutely, she did. You, I have no doubt that she understood the value of those documents. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It blows your mind, doesn't it? It does blow my mind, yes. I still, yeah. <laughs> the, the bonfire that opens the epilogue is just so upsetting. I know. It's just, yeah. Um, and she knew what she had. There is no doubt in my mind that she understood the importance of those documents. And, you know, I've never read that before. How come I didn't know that? Mm-hmm. I'm going, how come mm-hmm. I did not know that? It's usually diminished. It's usually kind of like, well, you know, she just didn't want to burden anybody or, you know, whatever. I mean, it's, it's almost always diminished when it is talked about. Okay, um, so how and is, it's always kind of covered up as like, you know, it, she wasn't doing anything, uh, anything uh, suspicious. It was just that she was she was trying really hard to lessen the burden on the people who are going to have to take over her stuff after her life. You know, that's the kind of explanation I've seen around it. What place does her history have now? Do or, or scholars referring to it is it providing anything for us right now or is it sort of the history of women's suffrage yes. you mean yes that, that three volume account that they authored and then anthony offers a, uh, offers a fourth volume absolutely i think it still fundamentally structures all the suffrage narratives that we tell it is still absolutely the spine and the backbone of all the suffrage history that we tell um so i think it is still deeply structuring the narratives i think we're still largely adopting the narrative that they bequeathed us um, with some exception, but um, but it still anchors the way in which we understand not just the suffrage story, but the way we understand 19th century women's rights. Um, you know, Ruth Borden, who, you know, a long time ago wrote a book on women and temperance, has to argue that it even is a women's movement because the suffrage story has so taken over and is so seen as the women's movement that all these other movements still don't even have legitimacy as, you know, a equally powerful women's rights movement in its own. So I think it affects not only the way we've told the suffrage story, but the way we've both told and conceived of women's rights in the 19th century. Right, because women's rights was very complex. When you talk about, um, you mentioned in your book, the free love advocates. Yeah. These these were, this is a story that's still going on. I mean, yeah. 
So it's yep. not just a little side freak show. Mm-mm. It's it's a very oh. civic, significant um, movement uh, yep. idea about what it what women's rights are, sexual rights are, mm-hmm. and. I think a lot of those stories, and also African-American women, you talk about those a little bit. Can you uh, explain that a little bit more for us? Yeah, um, African-American women were in a really, really tough spot because um, they may well, and they did support voting rights, but they also supported a much broader rights agenda and one that was much more collective and not necessarily based in the kind of individual rights rhetoric that Stanton in particular would have espoused. So they mostly aligned, although not exclusively, with the American Association, um, which did support the 15th Amendment. Um, but they were also pioneering their own rights activism. And there's a really great book by um, Martha, Martha Jones um, called All Bound Up Together, um, which is about the woman question in kind of African-American political culture after the American Civil War, really from the throughout the 19th century, really. Um, so black women were in a really tough spot because the debate about civil rights often was very masculine and the debate about women's rights was often very white. So they found themselves in a difficult position, and this will be true of women in um, this, you know, the movement in the 1960s and 70s. They'll, they'll have the same complaint that civil rights is very masculine and that the women's rights is very, it's very white. And so where do they fit? So they find themselves trying to straddle that and kind of creating an intersectional analysis that um, that remains a really important current in women's rights activism. Um, if, but they also were extremely active. There's, if you want to read also, there's a really fascinating um, book by, uh, by uh, um, Julie Desjardins called Women in the Historical Profession, and she has a couple of chapters on black women's history writing in the 19th century and the early 20th century and how they were telling their own history, um, and that's also really fascinating. The other story I think is really important is the uh, temperance movement. We think of the temperance movement mm-hmm. as a bunch of moralizers, okay? Right, exactly. They're not let into the story of women's rights, right? Which but, they were emphatically a women's rights movement. But they were concerned with the safety of the home. Yeah. Bottom precisely. line was we don't want men to be drunk because they come go home and beat up their wives. So it's right. It's, they go home, beat up their wives, and they spend all the family's money, and they yeah, they so, leave everyone economically and physically vulnerable. So that is very much tied into today's you know issues of domestic violence. And, Absolutely. And the, they realized that the vote probably wasn't going to solve that problem. That's right. Well, they think it's going to help, um, but they don't. They they start to think that they can legislate anti-temperance um, right. They laws, do, and then therefore they'll be able to vote in the world that they that they hope to see. Um, so they they by the late 1870s they're behind the vote, but they're. The other thing we need more, much more attention to is when people advocated the vote, what specifically were they advocating? Because when Stanton advocates the vote, she's advocating something really different than when the temperance women advocate the vote. So even an understanding of what suffrage activism was about, like what did people think the vote meant? Um, what was the rights agenda that that talisman, you know, um, embodied for them is something we also just need better histories of. They talk about that a little bit. What was uh, Anthony's and Stanton's view of the vote? How did they conceptualize it, and how did other women in the movement think about it? That's a big, long story, and I actually have an article that I'm working on right now um, about Stanton and Anthony's understanding of the vote, and I'm not quite sure, um, since I'm in the throes of writing that article and it's about 45 pages long, how do I distill that into a two-minute comment? <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure I'm in that mental space right now. Um, For them, the vote really did have economic power, so they really believed that it can confer economic power on women. So it wasn't that they believed political rights was all women needed. When they advocated for the vote, they were also advocating for women's political rights and women's bodily rights and women's other things because they understood the vote as having a kind of power that um, other people did not. So... um, but we still don't have very good histories of what the what the ballot means. Um, and I think looking at African American women would be very insightful because they yep. understood, okay, black men can have the vote, but we're still uh, in danger of getting beaten up, not getting paid just wages. There were all kinds of things that the vote did not give them immediately, and it took you know that's right, yep, to the 1960s to get some of those things. Right. Yeah. Yep. To talk about the nineteenth amendment as giving women the right to vote is a misnomer, right? Women don't really fully get the right to vote until nineteen sixty-five. That's right. Um, yeah. 
Also, I noticed another difference between, I think, particularly Stanton's philosophy and temperance and labor women is that temperance and labor women seem to be more concerned about a communal sort of the community. And mm-hmm. and Stanton was very much an individualist. Yep, she sure was. Yep. And so there's there's again a kind of different conception of social justice that um yeah, and there needs to be so much more work on pulling all of that out. When I was writing this book, I kept trying to write the alternative history and the story at the same time, and if only I just had to pull out um, the other and kind of leave that as a really open question mark that we need to address. So, yeah. So the other thing that struck me is how many of the issues that were there are still with us. You know, we're still... I would say all of them. Right. And increasingly, the right to vote is also with us, right? With Citizens United, with, um, you know, the Supreme Court's overturning the Voting Rights Act, um, with voter ID laws. These are fundamentally affecting people's basic right to vote. Um, And I would say all the issues are still with us. And also, the other thing I was noticing, too, is what new myths are we creating? Yeah. Yep. I think we continue to perpetuate the myths of cynical falls. Um, what new myths we're creating, that's an interesting story. I mean, there's certainly one about Rosa Parks and the civil rights movement, which civil rights movement scholarship has done a fabulous job of, um, of unpacking. Recently, although not so recently anymore, um, Daniel Horowitz has done a really, really good job of uh, unpacking stories about uh, Betty Friedan's just, you know, writing the feminine mystique out of her, um, her, fem- her, you know, discontentment as a housewife. Here she was, this radical labor journalist and had all this background that she herself denies throughout her life. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of origin stories for the, for our 20th century movement, we still have a lot of myths that we're contending with. And, um, I think that, um, I hope that people start to pay attention to the kinds of origin stories we're using for, um, for the second wave movement. And also one of the things I hoped we could do with the, with this book was also, um, is try to undo the wave metaphor, which so many people are trying to do. Cause the other, it's not just that like the story of Seneca Falls structures our understanding of the 19th century. It fundamentally understand structures are, it is it, the one that bequeaths to us the idea of a wave narrative in the first place, because supposedly everything ends then in 1920. And then there's this recession. Whereas if we were attentive to all the different kinds of ferment and women's rights ferment, 1920 could pass as a kind of um, notable but not particularly definitive uh, episode uh, in that trajectory of rights activism that women were engaged in. So even the idea that we end in 1920 and then pick up again in the 60s with so many people these days have been trying to undo um, is itself a product of the Seneca Falls narrative. Um, and I think we need to let go of that. Well, so. part uh, another thing that I've noticed in the late 20th century was that the story of Roe v. Wade becomes yeah. the yeah, there's another good one. There's the, another really good one. Yep. It's the defining story of women's rights in the late 20th century. Yep. And boy, we still got labor issues. We've still got oh, yeah. we domestic still have, abuse. Yeah. We've got so many yep. other things, but that has yep. become the story. And, yeah. and students, the thing is about, about Seneca, Roe v. Wade, the prob, one of the problems with that story is that it makes it seem as if um, abortion is still legal, which of course it is, but it's so severely restricted that I find my students don't have any idea about the kinds of restrictions that exist on abortion rights right now. They have no idea. Um, and so it's a narrative that's not equipping us very well either. You know, not only is not only is Ruby Wade obscuring all these other issues, like you say, it's even obscuring its own its own shortcut, its own problems. So, with yeah, because if you because if you think you know, if women have the right to abortion, or women have the vote, or women have something that the state guarantees, it solves all these other things, which mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. automatically. So, what's the problem? Right. Right. Well, you can right. vote. <laughs> it's yeah. It's a it's it's sort of astonishing the degree to which all these issues are still with us in really powerful ways. So, what has been the response to your book? I don't know. Um, it just you know it's just kind of gone out into the world. I occasionally get emails from people saying they enjoyed it, um, which is always really rewarding. Um, but I'm not quite sure yet what the response to the book will be. Um, my favorite email was from a descendant of Marianne McClintock. Uh, who uh, happens to live here in Pittsburgh, where I live, and has a replica of the Seneca Falls table in his house. Um, Mary Ann McClintock was one of the founders of the Seneca Falls meeting. So um, so that was my favorite email, um, that he had read the book, and he said I could borrow the table at any time. So, <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. So uh, t- 
tell me, what's the takeaway here? I mean, for not only uh, the reader, but also scholarship, uh, what's the takeaway for this from this book? We need to decenter the story of Seneca Falls because we, every time we tell that, come a whole host of interpretive constraints that is then put on how we understand the movement, how we understand a rights agenda, how we understand the beginning that privileges white women's activism, that privileges a white women's agenda. It does a whole variety of things, and so I think we need to um, not jettison that story. It's obviously a really important story, but we need to decenter it and not make it the um, the pivotal event of of this of this period, um, I would guess that would be my takeaway: is that we need to decenter that story so that we can open up the narrative and try to recover all the things that that story is silencing. Okay, what about the the role of that story in women's museums, monuments? You know, we're still doing all this, mm-hmm. and so this is a problem not of just scholarship, but also in the public imagination, the public memory uh, of how we present the story. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in that in terms of m- museums, memorial, uh, memorials, monuments, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of the National Women's Rights Park at uh, Seneca Falls. Um, and, you know, it's a tricky business because as much as I say we ought to decenter the story of Seneca Falls, it has served as a really effective means to get public history resources, which are few and far between for women's history. Um, and so because of the fame of that story and the strength of it, it's been a really, and I tell the story of the creation of the park in the epilogue to my book, but it, um, it's been a really effective strategy for arguing for funds. And I don't begin to think that I have the understanding of the constraints and the um, real barriers that public historians have to trying to get women's history as part of the public history agenda. So I'm loath to be critical of any other kind of public history story because I just, you know, that is a very, very thorny political world and getting any resources for women's history at all is very difficult. So, um, so I think, I just, I'm not sure what the public story ought to be about that. Um, but I think it again ought to be decentered and situated in a much broader sense of ferment, um, both, both suffrage wise and women's rights wise. Um, one of the things I try to really emphasize in the book is that the suffrage movement is not the women's movement. And I think that ought to be more brought out into public history as well. Um, how we're going to do that, you know, it's going to be a challenging story. Because as you know, public history is fraught with its own set of political, um, political fights that are, are not ones that we as professional historians have to fight in the same way. And also, there's still other movements going on. And so when we say the women's movement is dead, mm-hmm. there's no need for women's movement, we really are making invisible uh, lots of women who are still working in all kinds of different areas of women's emancipation and freedom, from domestic mm-hmm. abuse to mm-hmm. yep, sexual exactly. rights or whatever. Yep. And strangely, as much as Seneca Falls is helping, I think it's also obscuring our sense of that broader struggle. So, so how as much as it's helping us remember that there is a women's struggle at all, um, it's also limiting, I think, our memory of that struggle. Uh, in teaching uh, Seneca Falls, how do you teach Seneca Falls? Or do you teach well, Seneca this Falls? Is, it's interesting you should ask me this. Just yesterday, I just taught my book in my women's rights course, um, which is about 19th century and 20th century right, uh, women's rights movements um, in the plural. And uh, I mostly now just teach a whole bunch of beginning stories. So I start with black women's resistance to rape uh, in the antebellum period um, and the really the massive uh, perpetration of rape against their bodies. And we read Mariah Stewart and we read um, a bunch of, we read some um, early, early texts that come out before Seneca Falls, some of the rights manifestos. And then we look at the Lowell Mill girls and their striking. And we look at some other activism. And then we look at some of the free lovers uh, and Mary Grove Nichols and others. And then we look at Seneca Falls. And then I try to just show them like, if we were to pick one of these as a beginning, what does that end up? constraining our narrative to be about. And, you know, if we pick Seneca Falls as a beginning, it leaves out a lot of the other things that we had just talked about, you know, and then if we pick, you know, I don't know, uh, the Lowell Mill Girls as a beginning, it leaves out some other stories. And so I haven't figured out how to teach it yet. What I'm doing now is just teaching a whole bunch of different foundational stories and showing that all of them are part of the complicated mess that will become a women's rights movement. And one of the things the students commented about in class yesterday was that they said they had no idea that the rights movement was so um, 
so broad based, like on so many different issues and also that there was so much contention within the movement. They just kind of thought it was just a slow march forward for suffrage. It was harmonious and lovely. Um, so, uh, so, so that's been interesting so to, you were, to you realize were like, that they have a very, um, a very co- coherent and very narrative of, yeah. What's that? What were we going to say? I was going to say that you've really kind of messed up the story. <laughs> I really have. I know. And even I don't know what to do in response. <laughs> I know. And this is what I'm hoping. I mean, of course, every book is part of a larger dialogue, right? No book is a is a, um, a kingdom unto itself. And I suppose what I tried to do with this book is kind of say to us, like, how can we, how, if we undo this, I also meant to kind of ask a question, what are we going to do in response? Um, what do we do? Because you're right, I've messed it up. And I'm not and I myself don't know quite what to do. Um, I'm still thinking through all that. My preference right now is not to teach a beginning, but beginnings in the plural and to try to keep track of all those different strands and those different women and those different agendas. We touched on this and you talked a little bit about it, but how uh, the image that you leave of Anthony and Stanton. I know you you, oh, you struggled yeah. with not wanting to make them into villains and they're not villains. They're just it's really hard because they're so venerated. And I think that, um, you know, they come off as really um, calculating savvy politicians in this book. They are calculating women. And I don't I don't know why that has to. I think because it's so contradict our understanding of them as kind of noble and, and altruistic and um, that. It, it's very jarring. But I think if we think about it, in some ways, it's not that jarring because all politicians are like right. this. There's nothing like them that's at all different from any other conniving, calculating politician. They're savvy and they're um, they're calculating. And so I, I certainly didn't mean to bring them down in historical estimation. If anything, I meant to build them up as actual real three-dimensional figures, not as the kind of cartoon characters that I think we've been bequeathed. And particularly that's been true for Anthony. And it's I think it's going to be really difficult to start to recover these women in some fully human, fully complex way. We just have such cartoonish visions of them, which is really a disservice to women's history, if you ask me. It's a, really dis- it's a real disservice to women's rights, too, to recover it in this kind of cartoonish way is not to prepare us to grapple with the real difficulties of fighting this kind of battle. Is it not also because women's history is pretty new, and, uh, well, now it's getting, you know, middle age. Yeah, it's, I'd say it's middle-aged. In middle-aged, middle yes. But the, the need for heroes, the need to have these romantic stories of people who overcome obstacles, we see that story, you know, women are down, and these heroes arise, and they overcome the obstacles, and we're triumphant, and it's more triumph and more progress on and on. It, this whole arc of how we talk about women's history and yeah. not stopping to talk about the contradictions, irony that is already in it. And I've been really moved and inspired by civil rights historiography, the civil rights movement historiography, which I think has been working really, really hard with precisely those dynamics you just talked about, um, moving away from a kind of king-centered narrative and moving toward a, one that actually pays attention to the real the real infighting that happened, the debates over really meaningful questions about what were what were reasonable white strategies, what were reasonable tactics, and the really many players that were part of a movement. It's not a you know it's not an SCLC story. And historians of the women's movement, particularly of the 19th century and even the early 20th century, have a lot to learn from that kind of um, honest look at both the shortcomings and the accomplishments of these kinds of rights movements. Well, and part of it also is the response, I guess, to the fact that for so long women's stories were not told that when we went right precisely we, and so to get a story told it's easier if you have a hero right so which is what i kind of meant with the public history discourse is like you you kind of need a heroized narrative in order to get it told if you're fighting against a culture that won't let you speak so probably at this point we're kind of maybe more ready for your book if you'd written this book 20 years ago i don't know if we would have been ready for it right it might have yeah i yeah i think there's something to be said for that yeah i'm hoping that's true and I'm hoping that people take away not that I'm trying to bash Stanton and Anthony so much as I'm trying to recover them as real um, people and real historical actors and not cartoon characters. Okay, you have been really generous with your time, Lisa, and it's been really fabulous. I love your book. It's very, Thanks so much. It's very so nice. interesting. And also, it's, it's a really good read. 
Thanks. That's I'm great to hear too. I worked hard on that. <laughs> um, so you told a little bit about what you're working on now. So what are you working you know, on now? Tell me again. I have, I have two projects. One is just still trying to recover because I have so many loose ends from um, writing this book about trying to recover an alternative narrative. So I'm putting together some of those. I'm working on articles about women in politics and um, on Stanton and Anthony's vision about the vote. And then I'm actually going to shift away from this project and work on a history of domestic violence. So my next project, uh, I anticipate being a book on domestic violence from the colonial era through the 20th century. So you're going to hit so temperance. Been, you're going to hit temperance with that, right? Yep, temperance will be part of the story and so will lots of other um, yeah, lot of their pieces. So I'm still conceiving of what that book will look like, but I'm sort of stunned that we have so little history of domestic violence or intimate partner violence as it's now called. Thank you very much, Lisa, and thank you to our thank listeners. Thank you, Lillian. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Book and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 